Hey everyone, welcome back to our live stream series, Living Faith in a Season of Crisis. We have been studying uh, the little read, often overlooked book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scripture. And we uh, have been doing one to two messages per week as a way to encourage and challenge us from the Word of God. And so uh, this week we're going to be in the second to last message in this series. And then we're going to continue next week with uh, a new series, and we'll be announcing that next week. So glad that you're here to join us, whether you're watching live, whether you're on the replay or you're listening, uh, this will be available uh, on the podcast in our regular podcast stream uh, later on this afternoon. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk is a little book in the Old Testament. Uh, almost to the end of the Old Testament, written uh, about 600 years before Christ. And Habakkuk was a prophet, and Habakkuk as a prophet was different than other prophets in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a series of prophets, people who speak on God's behalf uh, to people as uh, God directs them. And sometimes they would speak on God's behalf as a way of telling the future. That, that's where we get the idea of prophecy as a, as a foretelling of the future. Often, though, they would, they would do something that, that biblical scholars sometimes just call forth-telling or telling the truth about the present. That was the prophet's job, to tell the truth to the people on God's behalf, to speak to the people on God's behalf. Habakkuk's different, though. Habakkuk is a prophet who doesn't speak to the people on God's behalf so much as he speaks to God on the people's behalf. Habakkuk goes before the Lord in prayers of anguished faith and asks the Lord why things are going the way that they're going. So I think in light of the season of life that we're in, that this is a very uh, applicable book of the Bible for us to be studying. If you've missed any of this series or missed all of this series to this point, do not fear. You're going to totally be able to hang in and learn from this message. Um, but all of those messages, the previous messages, are available in our podcast stream, the Cross United Church podcast stream. And um, and we're, we're going to see this, this afternoon uh, is that God is more fearsome than our fears. That we live in a world and we live in a moment of tremendous fear, tremendous anxiety. Early on in the midst of this season, I said, we've probably never been better prepared medically for a global pandemic, but we've probably never been less prepared psychologically and emotionally because we live in a culture and we live in a moment of tremendous anxiety and tremendous fear. This, this moment we find ourselves in is, is a time when there is real danger. There is real danger, life-threatening danger. And just quite frankly, we have a lot that we could be scared about and we could be legitimately afraid of. And so how do we respond in this moment? How do we respond when just going to Publix could kill us? How do we respond when we could catch a virus that could put us in the emergency room, put us in the 
intensive care unit, put us on a ventilator, or even put us in the ground? How do we respond when this danger is real? How do we respond when the financial system around us is, is sort of caving in? How do we respond when there is real danger and things that we, sh- we can and honestly should be legitimately afraid of? How do we respond in a season of fear, a season of crisis? Well, I think that the antidote to that is found in part here in Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm someone who, um, I, I deal with a lot of stuff in my life. I'm a, I'm a messed up person. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a person who needs Jesus. I'm a broken person in need of restoration, just like every single one of us. And one of the ways that brokenness often manifests itself in my life and it sort of surfaces is through often um, seasons of deep fear, anxiety, and worry, uh, sort of ebbs and flows in my life. I remember um, th- this has been a, a theme of my life for as long as I can remember. I remember asking my mom, just to be a little honest with you, when I was probably eight years old, maybe seven years old, um, if I was in danger of getting AIDS because I would crawl in bed with them early in the morning and snuggle with them because I'd heard that sleeping with someone could give you AIDS. Obviously, I didn't understand what was happening, but that was that was a fear that was present in my mind, in my heart, when I was just a young, young kid. And so this is not something I'm coming to from a place of, um, of on high, like I figured this all out. This is something that I need to hear as much as you do. But by God's grace, he has helped me through biblical principles of dealing with fear and anxiety to overcome that uh, much more so than I would have if I hadn't been in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I can only imagine what kind of fear I would live in constantly um, if I didn't know Christ, if I, if I didn't trust God. And, uh, and so I think he's going to offer some help to us. The Lord is going to offer some help to us this afternoon through Habakkuk 3. And what we see in Habakkuk 3, the overarching theme of Habakkuk 3 is our fearsome God. Our fearsome God. From Habakkuk 3 through 15, we see the power and the, and the ferocity, the fearsomeness of God in unmistakable splendor. In unmistakable power. If you look um, at Habakkuk 3.3, if you got your Bibles or your app, you're probably watching on your phone or maybe your computer, so you may need to get a physical copy of the Bible. If not, that's okay. You can listen. You can totally follow along. Habakkuk 3.3. Remember, Habakkuk 3 uh, is a prayer or a song that Habakkuk has written to the Lord. And um, this song or prayer that he's written to the Lord Um, starts with this prayer and this asking God and contending and pleading with God for him to revive his work and to reveal his work in the midst of his generation. In Habakkuk 3.2, we talked about that, that that prayer for revival and revelation in Habakkuk 3.2. Beautiful, beautiful verse. Now he goes into the fear of God in Habakkuk 3.3. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. So what we see here is, a, is an allusion back 
hundreds of years. For Habakkuk, it would have been almost a thousand years before. This would have been a long time ago for Habakkuk when God brought his people, Israel, out of Egypt and led them through the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai and revealed his glory and his power and his law to the people of Israel through Moses. And, and he's, he's, he's alluding to that where, where it says God comes from the mountains. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. This, this alludes to Habakkuk 2.14 where it says the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. We talked about how that's come, come true. This was a minor nation nestled in between major nations in the ancient world, worshiping what most people in the world, if they knew of him at all, Yahweh the Lord, would have thought he was a tribal deity of a small, minor, insignificant nation. This name of God, the Lord, has now been brought into every part of the earth. It has been, it's, it's gone from this minor religion in the ancient Near Eastern world on the coast of the the, Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, and it is, is gone. And now we here we are. I'm in Florida, and wherever you may be, Florida, wherever you may be watching this from, maybe you're somewhere else in the world, and if so, welcome. You have heard the name of the Lord, and Habakkuk's prophecy has come true. God's splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. And the, way, the way this manifests itself is through general revelation of God through creation. Look at verse 4. His brilliance is like light, Habakkuk 3, 4. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Um, no, notice it says there, rays and, 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 and flashing brilliance are coming forth from him. And this may be an allusion to the created order in the sun, you know, the created, this created orb of, of gas in the sky that's so bright we can't even look at it without burning our eyes. And what it's saying there is even the veiled created glory of God is overwhelming to people. We can't even look at the sun, let alone God himself. Moses was overwhelmed when he asked to see the glory of God. And God said, you can't see my face, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and you'll, you'll see my back. That is, that's, a, that's a metaphor or a, or a word picture for a veiled form of God's glory. We can't even bear the sight of a veiled form of God's brilliance and his splendor. And we ask to see his glory and we have no idea what we're asking because it would consume us in a moment. He goes on in verse 5, and I read this passage a few times recently. It's really, obviously, um, really, really poignant right now. Plague goes before him. Pestilence follows in his steps. Plague goes before him, and pestilence follows in his steps. Now, I'm not going to speculate on everything that God may or may not be doing in this moment, but what I do know is the Bible teaches that God is in control, and that he works all things for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus, and that he brings judgment upon the wicked. So we don't know all that he's doing in this plague and pestilence, in this pandemic, this, this virus, but we do know that God is in control of it, and he has a purpose in it. Look at verse 6, it says, 
he stands and he shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. He looks the age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. So the I, there was a song I used to listen to classic rock when I was younger. I still do sometimes. Um, and there was a, a song uh, by Kansas called Dust in the Wind. Maybe some of you know that song. And, and one of the things in that song says, nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. Because as far as we're concerned, the world around us seems never ending. You know, the, 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 the land we live on was here way before we got here and it's going to be here w- much longer than we are. The world's, you know, it's, it's amazing. You can go to ancient places thousands and thousands of years ago and find where people lived on that same land. The land is there. The people are gone. So what he's saying here, it says that the age-old mountains break apart and the ancient hills sink down. It's saying that in comparison to what seems permanent to us, these things are temporary. He says his pathways are ancient, Habakkuk 3, 6. He is the only eternal one. He is the only ancient one. God is the only thing that lasts forever and is forever. Only his ways, only his person, only God is eternal and permanent. And if you want to have something permanently stable in your life, it better be built on something that's permanent. And the only permanent thing ultimately is God. Look at verse 7. I see the tents of Cushan in distress and the tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. The nations fear the Lord. Verse 8. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? This is referring uh, back to when God split the Red Sea and he split the Jordan River for his people. And the answer to this question is, no, he's not angry at the rivers. He's angry at the nations that use the rivers as a means of insulating and protecting themselves as a means of perpetrating injustice and wickedness in the world. Verse 9, you took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and this lifts its waves on high. What's all this saying? It's saying that God has his, his power and his judgment are bringing the, the, the quaking and the groaning of creation. Romans 8 says that creation groans in eager expectation of the revelation of the sons of God. That, that, that creation is groaning. This is, why, this is why we have what sometimes theologians call natural evil. Earthquakes, hurricanes, pandemics, viruses, things that are outside of human control in the world because God's judgment is on its way. The earth is groaning and waiting for redemption. Look at verse 11. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march against the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. This is, this is, this is the point that Habakkuk's getting to here. The fearsomeness of God manifests itself in judgment against God's enemies. 
The nations is a, is a reference to all people who are not in relationship with God. That are, who are not connected to God through the covenantal way that God has determined people can approach him. In, in the ancient world, that was Israel was the, was the custodian of the covenant. In, in the current moment, the gospel of Jesus Christ, through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, we have entry into the presence of God in relationship with the one and only true and living God. And that all those who are enemies of God, who are not brought into that covenantal relation, will suffer the judgment of God. This is what he's saying. It's not a happy-go-lucky picture, but it is the truth. He tramples down the nations in wrath. But look at what he says in verse 13. You trample the nations in wrath, the end of verse 12, but verse 13, you come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from neck to foot. So what he's saying here is there are two options. There are two options. You can be a member of the cluster of people who are aligned in rebellion against God and God's purposes and God's plan, or you can be a member of the people of God. The enemies of God receive judgment and the people of God receive salvation. And that's our hope in this moment. This is our hope. This is what Christian faith is all about. We're not people whose hope is in salvation in this world. We could die. Things could collapse around us, but we have an eternal hope, the scripture says. We have an eternal destiny, an eternal home. He saves his people. He saves his anointed. His anointed, that refers to David the king, the the great king of Israel, and then David's descendants, David's sons who would sit on David's throne, ultimately seen in Jesus Christ. And how did he save his anointed? How did he save his Messiah? Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. How did he save his Christ? And Messiah means anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. How did he save him? He saved him by raising him from the dead. That's what we just celebrated on Sunday, Easter Sunday. God saved his anointed and through his anointed, he saves his people. That anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sin, will be given eternal life, will be united to Christ so that his life is now their life. His salvation is now their salvation. His resurrection is now their resurrection. His peace is now their peace. His hope is now their hope. That you have died, the scripture says, to your old way of life and have been hidden with Christ in God continues in verse 14, Habakkuk 3.14, you pierce his head, that is the enemy's head, Babylon's head, with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. What's he saying? He's saying the enemy's weapons are turned against him. The enemy's weapons are turned against him. That God will judge his enemies. That God will judge the enemies of his people. That God will judge the enemies of all that's true and right and good and beautiful in this world. He will will turn it away. There's hope at the end of this. 
That is a fearsome God. And I'm going to tell you that that is the only thing, the only one, the only person worth being afraid of, worth fearing. Holy reverence, awe, A-W-E, in the presence of God. That's the cure for your fear. It's the cure for my fear. That's the cure for your anxiety. That's the cure for wondering what's going to happen next in so much uncertainty is the fearsomeness of a holy, powerful God who will by no means clear the guilty but will save those who are his. So that, that, that just leaves the question. Are you his? And if you're his, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. Because the real legitimate fears in this world can't touch what matters most. They cannot touch your life that is hidden with Christ in God. Because you have already died and Christ who is your life has been raised and you are seated with him in glory. And this leads Habakkuk to fearful faith in light of a fearsome God. We're going to end here in verse 16. I heard, Habakkuk says, and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Notice he's not saying that he's not afraid anymore. And being a Christian and being a person who fears the Lord and who trusts in Jesus doesn't just like dissolve your fear. Some of us by personality are more prone to be afraid and anxious than others. And that doesn't just go away any more than a physical malady or a, a, you know, a missing arm would, would, would magically go away because you're a, a Christian. Now, God does heal. God can do miraculous things. But often he lets us limp along in the brokenness and the weakness of how he has designed us to live with him in this broken world. And he designs those things for good. And with the sin in this world and with Satan and what all of the brokenness intend for evil, God means for good, 2 Corinthians 12, because when he is strong, we are, excuse me, when we are weak, then he is strong. And this is where Habakkuk finds himself. He's afraid, but notice this expression of faith, Habakkuk 3.16, now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. And you just think about that. Just think about that in light of this coronavirus contagion that's, that's sweeping the globe and has swept the globe and has put us all in our homes. And We quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. We quietly wait for the day when the coronavirus won't threaten us. But more than that, we quietly wait for the day when we will see Christ and we will live with him in heavenly, eternal peace. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray you would help us to fear you more than our fears, to trust you more than our doubts. And Lord, that you, our fearsome God, would be a great comfort and power to us in this moment. Thank you for the wisdom you've given to people to begin to come up with plans to mitigate the spread of the virus. We know that those are ways that you have ordained 
through human hands, through human ingenuity. We pray there would be a vaccine soon. We pray it would be developed more quickly and more effectively than any vaccine in human history. We pray that you would stop the spread of the virus, that the, whether it's the heat of the sun, whether it's some sort of medical breakthrough, Lord, or just a miracle, Lord, that you would stop the spread of this virus and the plague and the pestilence would not touch us. But in the meantime, Lord, I pray you would turn our minds and our hearts to you to trust you and fear you more than the things we're afraid of. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you're encouraged. I love you. I'm praying for you. I'll see you soon.